The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. friends. Welcome to episode 133 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. I hope you had a wonderful Easter weekend. I know we certainly did, and now we have got a great episode for you. My guest this week, Burgess Owens, one of the most inspiring men. He was just so wonderful to talk to, and I loved our conversation and our time together The only downside, because of coronavirus, we didn't get to meet in person, so we did this online, but he did promise me once this is all over that he and I could go get lunch and actually meet in person. I was so inspired by Burgess. I just think he is absolutely amazing. So we've got that conversation coming up for you, and this week in my Latter-day Life, How Do I Love Coronavirus? Let Me Count the Ways. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, my guest here on the Latter Day Lives podcast, it is the biggest thrill and honor to have a former NFL player. And I mean 10 years in the NFL, not to mention a Fox News contributor and so much more that we're going to talk about that he's doing now. Burgess Owens, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sean. I appreciate it. Looking forward to this. It's going to be a lot of fun and hope everybody stays tuned in. We're going to have a lot of good stuff to go through for sure. Man, I Burgess, this is so thrilling for me to have you on the show. We're just super excited. And I've got so many questions. Uh, but first of all, let's get to know kind of uh, your life. Tell us a little about a uh, little bit about your young life and and where you grew up. Okay. Well, and this is this is the part I love to, to talk about because I was really blessed. Um, I, I grew up in the Deep South in the '60s uh, in uh, Tallahassee, Florida, days of KKK, Jim Crow. Uh, oh segregation, but but here here's the other side that a lot of people are not familiar with that that I cannot. Um, I'm always excited about sharing, is that it was a community that really lived the American dream. This community that had those tenets that that I find mm. here in Utah, the values of um, of God, family, education, industry, those things that really make every culture work. And because we were segregated, everyone turned themselves within to make sure that that community worked. Mm. Our, our focus was. The parents were there to make sure their kids grew up. They were confident. They were educated. Uh, they were patriotic. And so, so I came out, out of that community, one of the most eternally optimist people I could possibly be, because we were taught, even though we had obstacles, that this is the greatest country in the history of mankind, that you can do anything here if you just work hard, treat people right, uh, believe there's a God in heaven, and in the end of the day, it all works out in the long term. And, and so it, it's, you cannot beat that kind of uh, opportunity. So that's the, that's the environment I grew up in. Uh, I'm going to t- tell you a little bit later on about my, my, my parents and their, their impact on me, but but I left there to go to um, to play ball. Matter of fact, my my high school experience. If anybody remembers the movie Remember the Titans, that was kind oh, of my yeah, experience. Of I was one of four Black Americans that that um, that integrated this this formerly all white school, and uh, and it was interesting because the first year was a lot of uh, a lot of trials and tumult. It was a very tough year because we had two different cultures coming together uh, and we had to overcome the, the prejudice of our fathers. Uh, and and the, the thing that I, I recognize as I came through that process is some of those guys that, that it was my sophomore year in high school, uh, that we had difficulty with in those days, uh, some of my best friends on Facebook. Because what, what happens in this country is we, we end up growing up. We grow up and realize, first of all, how wrong we might have been and we want to make sure things are right so we can feel good about ourselves. And that's the way our country has always worked. We always look to find our better selves. And um, so I ended up leaving, I ended up leaving uh, uh, Tallahassee to go to school at the University of Miami. I was the third black, um, black American to, to get a scholarship down at the University of Miami. And wow. uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great, great um, environment. Because we should it, point out, though, that I mean, University of Miami, you, you, I like how you kind of throw it out there. Like, I mean, we're talking about a football powerhouse here. 
You're talking about an incredible program. It, it, ha it has become so, and I'm so proud to, to say I'm from there. But believe me, when I went there, we were not the powerhouse. We were the stepping stone <laughs> for, for every team that came through. We were the team that everybody loved to come down to, to play in a nice warm sun and orange bowl <laughs> and then go home with a win. So, so, <laughs> so, but, but on the other side of that is that you learn after a while, and this is the, the, the point I like to make with, with, with life and sometimes those difficult times we go through because playing in University of Miami those four years, of losing, it, it taught me, a, I had a choice. I could either be drawn into the negative of always losing and look at myself as a loser, or I can look at this as the, you know, that the, the blessing was I knew it was gonna get better at some point. You become a total optimist. If you look at this and say, I know next year, next game, it's gonna get better, it has to get better. And so with that process, you learn to, at some point, begin to just, either it's gonna get better or you believe it's gonna be, either way, you move forward in a positive manner. And so that was a great thing that came out of University of Miami. Um, so I was there for four years. Uh, my, my degree was biology and, and my minor was chemistry. Uh, and I went on to the Jets and another seven years of losing seasons. <laughs> so, uh, so between my high school, my last year in high school and, and uh, in my uh, year of my seventh year in NFL were pretty much all losing seasons. And it was a very, very wow. important time for me because I, for the first time after all those years, I started to get a little bit depressed. I started to wonder, when is this good hard work going to finally pay off? When does it show itself to, to like look at the scoreboard and say, finally, I'm a winner? <laughs> and, um, and, 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 and what, I, what I think is interesting about that, Sean, is that we all kind of go through that process of, you know, we have those times when things are not right. Uh, you, know, it, it, you know, life is not fair. But we have to remember, at the end of the day, we live in, a, in America, United States, of, of, of United States, and yeah. the place that literally that second chances are always available, and we can always get back up one more time. And if we do that enough with the right attitude, everything works out. So I always talk about that. My twelve years of losing to get to the Raiders, and that thirteenth year, of course, is when things just turned around and went to the Super Bowl. And guess what happens? Now that I'm a Super Bowl champion, no one asks what happened to the first, what happened to you before you got there. No one asks about those years <laughs> of you struggling and losing and, and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's it, it, it that's the lesson of life. If wow. you hang in there, it always works out because we we have a, we have God in heaven that truly is fair. He he wants us to learn lessons, and what I learned through all those years of losing was some of the greatest lessons of my entire life. I learned to be an eternal optimist. I learned about about uh, about loyalty, about hard work, about uh, just just being in a habit of just giving your best no matter how bad things seem, seem to be. And if you learn those lessons through that tough time, then it makes everything work out. Because then at the end of the day, you can apply those to life and, and you realize that oh, you're where, where it came from. So, um, just, what again. an incredible run you had. Holy cow. That is amazing. I yep. mean, do you look back now, though? <laughs> did, so, I've got so many questions. And then also, we're going to get into, you know, the church and, and everything else. But I mean, what a life leading up to all this. You talked a little bit about your parents growing yes. up. Tell us about your family. And, and that's, that's what's really, I see of all the blessings that, that I can look back on my life of having, not only growing up in the Deep South during that time, because it gives me, it, it informs me to not only what our country can be like, but the opportunities that we all have, no matter how tough things might appear to be. But my, my parents were just... That, that generation, when they say it was the greatest generation, it truly was the greatest generation. Uh, my dad was a World War II vet. I had a chance to to have conversations with him his, his last oh, four or five years of his life. He passed right about 86 years old. And, uh, and that was generation. They, they went out to war. They paid the price. And they came back not looking for praise, not talking about what they had done. They just came back and built the greatest, greatest, greatest uh, middle class ever in our, in our, in our country. And, and yep. worked hard to prove that every race should be treated equal. So they did their part. They were remarkable. He went to the Philippines. He came back. Um, he grew up in, in Texas. So he, he got his college degree at, at Purview. But in those days, in the 40s, the, the Jim Crow laws did not allow blacks to move on to get the postgraduate degrees. So mm -hmm. I, I happened to run across a, letter, a box of letters after he passed away that he never talked about. He never showed me. These were, they were rejection letters. Uh, rejection letters from, from colleges across the country. It was very obvious that it was because of his color that he was not accepted. But what's wow. interesting, he never 
never showed it to us. He never talked about how bad he was treated. He used it personally as, as motivation. That motivated him to move forward. So he ended up uh, going up to Ohio State. He and his brother both got their PhDs at Ohio State. Dad got it in, uh, in agronomy, agriculture. My uncle got it in, in, in economics. They came back and they both taught college for 40 years. My dad at Florida A&M in Tallahassee. Uh, my, my uncle at the uh, University of Houston. They were both wow. entrepreneurs. They owned property. Uh, my dad ended up having a 400-acre uh, farm that he that he built and, and, and did a lot of great things with. Uh, we traveled the world. When I was five years old, I had a chance to travel to Liberia, Africa, because he had a research project there. So we lived there for a couple of years. And and uh, and, and I'm saying that to, to, to kind of put in perspective that people might not recognize is that there's a message that Americans cannot make it in this country because other Americans keep them down. And it's not true. This country is yeah. a place where because we can dream, because we are free, because we, we can look around and realize I can go out and build a business, I can produce a product, I can I can raise a family. Once we understand that, no one can be kept down. And so that's what this this my, my race was all about. And as a as a as a kind of just again to, for context, a lot of people don't realize that because of this attitude that actually started way back at the end of slavery, my community, this the black community in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, 1940s, 50s, and 60s, led our country in the growth of the middle class. Men matriculated from college. Men committed to marriage was 70%, and the percentage of entrepreneurs over 40%. You put that together, and you have a community that's very, very uh, proud of who they are and very much visionary in terms of what their kids should look like and what they should look, look, look at doing down the road. So it, it's, it's something that I can reflect back on, recognizing that we're no, we're no longer there. Something happened in the last 50 years that changed our trajectory, and that's my mission is to get that back. And it, and yeah. it, it starts with you have to have a belief there's a God in heaven. That's the beginning, and that's what, that's what allowed that community to grow and stay as strong as they were. They're very, very Christian-based. And let me just make, yeah. this, let me make this point because I think it's important to recognize where that came from. We have a community. Yeah. For a long time, they were slaves. They didn't have the freedoms to yeah. have a family, to, to worship the God, to even read. So guess what happens when, a, when a, anyone, any community, any race, all of a sudden has the freedom to have the vision, to go out and build something, to have a family they can, they can love on. And they also, in that process of, of the tough times, recognize there's a God in heaven. So we have always been, even today, what is the most um, Christian-based, I should say, say faith-based communities in our country, uh, because that's where it began, yeah. and that process was tra- was 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 uh, was given to each generation passed passed down. So, a big part of what we have mm-hmm. to do now is to start to make sure, and this is this is something that I have a commitment for, not only for my my community, my race, but for all Americans, is we have to start recognizing first of all, there's a God in heaven. And that that we can all be blessed through even the toughest times if we understand that everything is for our good. If we understand that, then mm. we start to to vote for and commit to our values and principles versus people and parties. So that's one of the things that I have a real strong I love that. to do. And and, and we're going to get it done. We're 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 a country that's yeah. resilient. And at the end of the day, we we always come back to to doing the things that uh, that we, we you know we start off. As a, as a mission for our country. I think what you grew up with, and I can't even imagine what your father grew up with, how did, how did the Jim Crow laws and your early childhood and whatnot, like being in the Deep South during the time that you were in your childhood, how did that affect you? That's a very good question. I, I guess the best way to start off answering that is, 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 is again, talking about my parents' generation. They fought yeah. against uh, the evil racism but they also protected their kids. They kind of, I kind of lived in a cocoon, to be honest with you. Mm. I didn't really have an interaction with white Americans until I was 16 years old. So my experience basically was, was being in a community, uh, uh, learning about our history. I learned about Harriet Tubman, Booger T. Washington. I mean, and then seeing around me success. I saw business yeah. owners everywhere. So for me to grow up and, and recognize that being a business owner is, is no big deal is because I saw it. I saw... Um, Perkins Service Station, Baker's Pharmacy, a hospital with all black nurses and all black doctors, uh, a speed uh, 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 supermarket. So it was, it was an environment that, first of all, 
I was kind of protected from the real the real harshness of it, but at the same time, we we, we did deal with occasion because my my parents were were those that <clears throat> my dad was one that he was not a joiner, he was not one to go out and demonstrate, but he was one that would take uh, you know we have a, we had a boat all my life we'd go out mm-hmm. to lakes and and ski or, or go down to um, uh, St. Mark's and, and do little, little snorkeling that kind of stuff, yeah. um, and so he was the one that when when it, when when integration came was the first one to take his boat to a, a lake that was normally, that was formerly segregated. So we dealt with the taunting and the name calling and all that kind of stuff. But what Dan mm. was showing us through his example was what courage looked like. Cause it, it yeah. wasn't, it wasn't that we were totally confident and full of courage. We just did the things we had to do because it was the right thing to do. And at the end of the day, we found out that's what courage looks like. You just do it. And then realize you say, man, I was that was pretty good. I, I saw myself. I saw my way through it. I did it, and 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 that's that's how that that attitude begins and becomes a habit. So that courage actually begins become easier to to understand and do because you recognize it's all about action, taking the right action, even though you might not feel confident or you might be feel nervous about it. Let, let me give you an example of of some of the things that I saw. And that, that really made a difference with me during those, that, that during that time. Those are the days again of, uh, of you know, of, of um, segregation. So you go to a, a, a restaurant or go to a service station, and there was a, it was segregated fountains, you know, black and white fountains. Or you go to a service station and you have white women and white men on the side and colored in the back in terms of restrooms. We would travel every single summer from Tallahassee to uh to texas uh houston texas with my 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 grandparents and my cousins all that were so and dad would always would always start us off we'd maybe get in the car around oh 10 11 o'clock at night all five kids with little pillows and blankets and and then we drive all night and by the time we woke up we pretty much were close to home and i realized part of that as we're traveling you'd have to get gas and then there would be these these opportunities where you have to you know have to make that decision where, what restroom you're going to go into and and mom and mom and dad never acquiesced to that to that mentality. They always did what they felt was right. So mom would go into the white restroom. Dad would go into the, the black uh, the the white men's restroom. Well, we stopped at this one service station, and I remember mom going in the restroom, and these two young guys came out and tried to knock the door down. And I saw I was sitting in the back, maybe 10, 11 years old. I, I watched my dad get out. And go and deal with these guys. There was an altercation, and and he won. Uh, and then mom came out when she was supposed to, when she felt like it. And dad showed his two boys and his three girls what real men do to make wow. sure that they, that respect of, of of their wife or the of of, of womanhood. So I always remember that. I love it. Oh, Burgess, that is awesome. And and, and, and you know, Sean, that's that's actually the kind of things that we had to find opportunities to show our kids through our actions. Uh, not, you know, and it wasn't that dad meant for that to happen or he did it for my good. No, he, of course he, he not. It was yeah. natural. Uh, and I look back on my journey, my path, and I see Heavenly Father's um, fingerprints all over the place. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> my, my, uh, my 10th grade year, uh, we had a club. You know, you have, you, have, you have high school clubs like science clubs and, and music clubs. Sure. And, well, we had, an inter, we had an interracial club. So interracial club, yeah. I mean, it's it's, this says well, it says a lot that somebody was trying to figure out a way to bring kids together. Awesome, and and yeah. yeah, So we would do things with each other because because this is the first time both races had a chance to experience anything with each other. The only thing I remember doing together was going to each other's churches, and the only thing, only church I remember was my church and another church. I brought all my all the all the my, my white friends to. To the black church, Black Baptist Church, and it was an experience for them that something never seen before. And um, and there was somebody in the club that had to be a member of the church because mm. we were invited to go to you know to the church, uh, church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. And I don't, I have no idea. I look back years later, and I just I realized that I had no idea who it was. But my the uh, the teacher oversaw the whole thing, kind of pulled me to the side and said, Burgess, listen, uh, you know we're gonna we're gonna go to this church. It's a Mormon church. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we're doing it because you know, we, we were asked to. Uh, just know uh, we got your back. <laughs> we don't like blacks. So we got your back. And so that was my oh. initial impression. But, but here's the thing that also, to, to take it a step further, all I remember about the service was walking up the steps and two young men with badges were opening the door. That's the only thing I remember. Mm. 
That is just awesome. I, I want to hear a little more about University of Miami. And I also want to put in the plug that, yeah, maybe it wasn't quite the University of Miami that it became. Because, I mean, it really has become quite a prestigious school for football. You are part of the Hall of Fame. You are a Hall of Fame inductee. It, it was it was a good place. And, and I'll say this. It was the best place for me. Um, and, and it's interesting how I got there. Uh, and we, we look back and I see how how tough times really kind of end up being good times. I had a, I, you know, played my, so- I had three years in high school, sophomore, junior, senior years. And my first two years were really good. My junior year was, a, was just a fantastic. Went to, we, we went to the, to the state um, uh, championship. We didn't win, went there though. And then my senior year, when I thought everything was going to work out just perfectly, everything fell apart. Uh, I got hurt. Members of, members of the team got hurt. We, the harmony we had began to fall apart. Guys started quitting. It was a disaster season. Mm. One in which, again, I grew up in Tallahassee. So you have Florida State and Florida A&M, two colleges. One I, one I could I could run to. The other one was right across town. And neither mm-hmm. team was trying to recruit me because it was just such a terrible season. <laughs> so 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 um, I did know this. <clears throat> I had to, you know, get, living in Tallahassee. Uh, one winter, it got to be 32 degrees, and I remember thinking, I can never go any further north from here. I got to go south. <laughs> so, so, so that's that's how a little bit of cold I could tolerate in those days. And uh, so, so I ended up going to. The, I, I decided just to try try the university. I just I had this matter of fact. What happened is I saw a Sports Illustrated, and they had University of Miami when they were playing against OJ and, and USC. So I think that was an inspiration to let me see if, if there's something in Miami. So I went to the coach and asked him to send me uh, send some information down from Miami, see if they might be, be might be interested. It was such a terrible season that he ended up taking a film from my junior year, a year and a half earlier, <laughs> that had to be a really good game. He spliced it into the to the film. He sent it down to University of Miami, and they thought they had the latest and greatest. <laughs> so, so believe me, I was ex- I was ex- love it. I was excited to go down. They, they did they didn't know they did not have to recruit me. I, I went I went down uh-huh. and. Sign that, sign that, that scholarship as soon as I could, as I could before they figure this thing out. Oh, I just love it. Did you really believe when you were playing for University of Miami that you'd be that you would go pro? Like, did you know that the whole time you were a star there? No, you know, it, it, it's interesting because it's changed so much over the years. In those days, the reason I was going to Miami was because I, I wanted to. I wanted a degree in marine biology, mm. and I literally wanted to just get a place where I can do that, and they could, they could pay for the, the college. I, I really did not think, keep in mind, my last year was one in which nobody recruited me. So I did not think that that would, that would be my future someplace. So going down there, I just wanted to do my best. Now, there's something else about that era that's so important to remember. Because we had so much respect for family, you know, we were taught to respect our country, uh, our family, God, sure. women. And the last thing I wanted to do was to disappoint my, my parents. So we were taught growing up to work really, really hard. As a matter of fact, if somebody told us we couldn't do it, uh, then that was our, our sign to work even harder to prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah. So going to University of Miami, I, I really didn't think about pros. I mean, it was not something that was ever in my mind until probably my junior year in college. Um, and, and, he, and here's another little tip, is that I went there as a running back my sophomore year, they had no idea what to do with me. They just didn't know. They 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 tried me at a fullback, running back, receiver, and then they finally one day said, "You know, Burgess, we have a good receiver out there. Why don't you just go and see if you can cover him?" And so I went out and I had to cover him. And then they said they're going to turn me into a defensive back, and that was the most depressing day of my life at that time. <laughs> I did not want to be a defensive back because it, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah. And my message here, my message that ended up being the only position I could have played. They gave me the longevity. They gave me the ability to show my talents off because I was just I was just made to be a defensive back. But awesome. here's a message. There was a coach who saw something in me that I did not see in myself. Matter of fact, uh, I was so down about it. I just, you know, I decided to just go ahead and do the best I could with, with, with that position. But at the end of the day, there are people around us all the time that see more in us, us, in mm. us than we see in ourselves. And sometimes we just have to go with the flow, just do our best. And it was the best decision that could have ever been made. I loved the position. It gave me 10 years in the NFL, and it gave me many more lessons, of course, just being in a position oh, yeah. to, to do that. Oh, so. Burgess, that is amazing. How did you end up on the Jets? What happened at the University of Miami, as I mentioned, we were, uh, we were kind of a, a stepping stone for many teams. We, matter of fact, because we were independent, mm. uh, in order for us to 
really good a good get good a good schedule to make I guess make money with people coming in is to have the best teams in the country come to play us or we go there. <laughs> so I remember looking at our schedule, coming back from some looking at our schedule, being so impressed. Alabama, Texas, Notre Dame. <laughs> and then I remember we gotta play these guys. <laughs> so, we had to play these guys. So so anyway, so we, we might want one on one two or three games a season, but here's the upside of it. As scouts came to watch those teams because they were all, they were the best teams in the country, they couldn't help but see the guys that were on, on the team with University of Miami. So we had we had about three or four guys the year I was I was drafted that ended up going to the pros because the scouts would come and watch those other teams and see us, and it just worked out. To, you know, we played well against these guys, and we it, it gave us a little bit of value. I was uh, drafted number one by the Jets, the the, the, the first defensive back drafted, thir- uh, number thirteen. And at that time, Joe Namath was still there. So I was excited about meeting Joe. You got to play with Broadway Joe. I had to play, play with Joe for about three years. His last oh, three years was my, was my first three years, which was exciting to know that. But at the end of the day, this was at the very end of Joe's career. Yeah. And, and, and the Jets did not want to put any pressure on Joe, so they never gave him a backup that would put pressure on him. Mm. So when, when Joe got hurt, whether it be the first game, or third game, or fifth game of the season, when he got hurt, the season was done with us. <laughs> so, so it's kind of depressing after a while. You see your quarterback uh, being carted off the field and realize, oh, boy, that's our season. Uh, We're not going to the playoffs this year, for sure. <laughs> so so, uh, so anyway, so that happened for seven yeah. years. So believe me, by the time that seventh year happened, I was, I was getting a little discouraged. Now, I know that somewhere in here, and I don't know where, uh, but you started a family. Gosh, it's my seventh year. Um, uh, we ended up meeting Josie. End up, uh, uh, she was a flight attendant. And and by the, a year later, we were married and started our family maybe two years after that. Uh, and as, as it worked out, I had, I had Summer. Summer was three years old when I left the Raiders. And we started we really starting at that point to get the rest of our kids in. So yeah, uh, we had Randy the year I retired, and before it's all over, we had six kids. So Virgis, I'm dying to hear your conversion story. I was traded from the Jets to the Raiders, and here's the thing about the Raiders: it was a place also that uh, from the practice field every single day I can look up into the in the hill and see the Oakland Temple, the only place in the entire country in a entire where NFL team. You can do that. Now, if you go back to the Raider uh, complex now, you can't do that because they moved. Did you play with Plunkett or no? Was, I played with you Plunkett. You played with Plunkett. Plunkett was a hero for me when I was, uh, when I was a kid, yeah. Well, Plunk was a guy. matter of fact, the year that, that, uh, that we went to Super Bowl, that was, that was Plunkett's first year of, of starting. And he was just one of, the, he was one of the greatest guys down to earth. And, that, and that's what the Raiders were in those days. It was a team of of guys who could not fit out, fit any place else. You know, the two old, two rambunctious, <laughs> two whatever. And it was just right for the Raiders. Awesome. Other than uh, other than Todd and Mark, they were very, very different guys. So over, over three years, uh, I never we never we developed a friendship, but never really talked about it because I didn't want to not like Todd. So we never talked about it, <laughs> but we got very close because we had kids around the same age. And then we just uh, I was out uh, out in in, in nineteen eighty two. I was out in Oakland. Uh, we had a strike going on, and I was out talking to players and uh, by myself. And, and so Todd had asked me to come to Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving dinner uh, with he and his family. I decided to go. And as I sat down, I remember today, sitting down, and there was a knock at the door. And they opened the door, these, these two young men came in, <laughs> and they had little badges on. And I, I was at the time really working hard to, uh, to learn names. And I remember saying to them, Oh, it's gonna be easy to remember your first names. You're both elder, <laughs> and I literally, I literally, I mean, they, they laugh just like you are right now, and I just continue to call them elder. So, oh, Burgess, so, that's the best. So, <laughs> so anyway, that 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 afternoon, we we uh, we didn't talk about the church, but went to a little place down in his basement and and said and just just talked about about our country, about manhood, about family, and I just remember thinking how impressed I was with these young men that were so far ahead of where I was at their age. And so I was impressed, but I, that, that was going to be the end of it. So as it worked out, over the next couple of weeks, we started taking lessons and, and uh, got to a point where uh, you know, I, had decided, I had decided around Christmas time to go and get baptized. Everything, we were a missionary's dream. We were the, we were the couple that would say, you know, they'll come in and teach us lessons and say, well, 
we'll come back. How about we come back another four or five days? He said, no, how about tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, we were, we were that kind of, we were the couple that just continued to say yes to everything until I got to a point. And this is important to recognize too, when anybody's about to make a, a, a move, a decision's a game changer, that's when the adversary puts up the barriers. And at that time, when I was about, we had decided to get baptized, I started having concerns because I remember I remember that, that blacks could not receive the priesthood just four years prior. And I couldn't oh, understand yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I was very proud of my, my, my race. Uh, but at the same time, my dad had always taught us uh, to be a leader. You know, if it's right, do it. If it's wrong, don't. I was kind of torn in between. And I remember yeah. uh, staying up one night up to three or four o'clock, not, not, not reading the Book of Mormon, because I, I didn't have a testimony of the Book of Mormon, didn't have a testimony of Joseph Smith or prophets. Uh, so I would read the, the scriptures, the Bible, to see if I could find the answers. And, and it just wasn't coming. And I remember Todd coming over one early morning uh, before going to practice, and he had all his books with him. So we sat down and took an intellectual look at the process. And of course, that doesn't work. <laughs> so we <laughs> left, and I uh, said, Todd, thanks, but uh, it just, that's not it, buddy. And, uh, but what happened is that we met with, uh, I had dinner with my missionary president, <clears throat> and we kind of set it toward the end of the table. I remember he didn't. He, I'm sure he knew what my concerns were, but he never brought it up. But he said something that really has stayed with me from that moment on. Uh, he, he turned to us and said, "It's interesting the way the Lord works. He gives you enough to take the first step. He asks you to take the second step on faith." Oh. And it, and it just hit me. You know, it, it was probably the first time that I experienced something inside that kind of gave me that feeling it was the right place to go. I wouldn't even doubt I might have even got a little teary eyed now that I know how the how the Holy Ghost works on yeah. me. But but I decided then that we're going to move forward. <clears throat> so we got uh, we got baptized December thirty first at ten p.m. <laughs> and years later, I, I thought back and said, "Wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, that couldn't be." I mean, I mean, who gets baptized New Year's Eve at ten p.m.? Uh, so I, I mean, I, I I really questioned if I was right about it until I ran into my missionary here, and I said, "Lyle, did, did we get did we did we get baptized that late?" He says, "Yeah, we had a game the next day, so I had practice that night, and you wanted to be baptized before the new year started." So. So we did oh, it. I love and that. guess what? Guess what? It, the place was packed. I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. People were all over the hey, place. The Raider is getting seriously. baptized. Come on, seriously. man. The Raider is getting baptized. Seriously. <laughs> I can imagine the scene, though. I really can imagine people saying, hey, Burgess Owens is getting baptized. That's what we're doing New Year's Eve. We're going to see Burgess Owens get baptized. And you know what? And the Raiders in those days in Oakland was, was everything. It was everything. I, I mean, it was... I, it was a special. It was a special feeling to be in a place that's, that's so into a team oh, yeah. that literally you have cars painted black and white. And you have kids and dogs named after NFL players. You know, it was it was crazy. It's crazy. I remember for Sony. What a great story. So uh, yeah. you end up getting finished with your your football career, and at some point you transition into kind of one of the things you're more well known for now. You got involved in politics and political issues. This led to yeah. you becoming a, uh, a commentator on on Fox. How did all that come about? I, I got baptized um, in, in December '82, and I was called to teach the 14 year old kids. So, of course, I, I really thought there was a mistake, obviously, because I didn't know anything. Awesome. But oh, in the process great. of teaching those kids is where I gave my testimony first of Joseph Smith, and then of the Book of Mormon, and everything else just kind of flowed from there. So when it came down to, to working out again, to getting ready for the season, a couple things weighed. Number one, I had a business that I was very excited about, that I was ready to move forward with. Uh, they were moving to, um, to Oakland. And even though I, was, I, was in, I just finished an all-pro year, I was, I, I was, I was a, uh, a free agent. And I remember just, I mean, I'm sorry, moving to L.A., from Oakland to L.A. All right. And I remember, thinking, I remember thinking that I just didn't know if I wanted to, you know, I just... I didn't know if it was going to be the right environment for my family at that point. Yeah. <clears throat> so all these things kind of added up, and I decided to just go ahead and retire. And I went full tilt to my business, and I, so I did that. Very, very, very cocky, I would say. Um, and that's when you leave a leave the NFL, you're making good income, and you have a reputation. It's very easy to be cocky. Sure. <laughs> Even though you might think you're, you know, you might think you're humble, you're, you're definitely cocky. Well, yeah. So I, I entered this business. <laughs> so I entered this business, and seven years later. The business went under. Wow. It was the most humbling experience I've experienced. Uh, literally had to start over. Uh, left, you know, had to leave my, that beautiful home I had in Long Island to move to Brooklyn. Uh, little one one bed. This is just for a few months. But for uh, 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 one bedroom apartment uh, 
in a very tough part of Brooklyn with four kids. And it was a very humbling thing. And one of the things, though, that, that came out of my, my upbringing is I was taught as a kid, any job that's a hard job, that's an honest job, is a good job. And so I was willing to do anything I had to do to, to, to provide. So for a couple of months, I was actually a chimney sweep. Uh, during the night, I was a security guard, uh, whatever it took. And if I remember a very defining moment. You're standing in that basement apartment, uh, hearing gunshot outside, look, looking outside the window and hearing gunshots. And I remember thinking this impression is how blessed I was more so than my next door neighbor, because I really knew this was temporary, that that the Lord had a plan for me. And this was not it. <laughs> this wasn't the end. And and it was it was interesting because I felt so strongly that it was going to move forward. And just a few months later, uh, by running into a friend of mine in D.C., walking into the temple, trying to get some direction, I was told about Word Perfect. And uh, so my first my first job in a corporate environment exec, as an account executive that I did for 25 years was uh, was Word Perfect. Got a job, and that's what got that's what got me down to uh, to Philadelphia area. So it's amazing how the Lord works. And here's the here's the other thing: the guy that I when I walked in. Now keep in mind the the DC Temple is five hours away from New York, where I was living in Brooklyn. <clears throat> I, I went down on a Saturday, walked in. As I was walking in, this friend of mine, Dana, was coming out. Dana just happened to be someone that, that I had baptized about maybe six, six years before. And, uh, and he was a member of the church. Actually, he was a bishop at the time. And so I'm walk, as I'm walking, he's walking out, I'm walking in. What are the chances, five hours away, that I end up running to the guy who can tell me, we're perfectly hiring, and they're closing the position on Monday, this old Saturday. I said, Dana, you called him and tell him I want the job. Because <laughs> so, I, I wanted that job, for sure. And, uh, and that was the beginning. That was the beginning of my, my career as an, as an account executive. So it's interesting how it all works out. So how does this all lead to the, the political? I mean, you've got, you being an, an author and a, a contributor to Fox News. You know, that, that's another good question, because I'm one of those guys up until nine months ago who said I would never, ever be a politician. I just never thought this was the way to make the difference. <clears throat> what I wanted to do, and I, and I started back when I left NFL, eventually to get to where I can impact youth. My, my passion has always been young people. Matter of fact, that's part of my patriarchal blessing. And um, so once I got here, I realized that there is a, a place, a niche that I can work, which is helping young people come out of the juvenile system, young boys and girls, and not going back in. Yeah. If you give them opportunity, give them an idea that this country is the greatest place and they can have a second chance. The reason why they're having the issues they're having, lack of education, lack of job opportunities, a lack of a family, is all because of policies that's been put together for, for the last few decades. Those policies end up leaving people hopeless. You go to any, you go to any urban community, and you see the impact of these policies and put on these people for a long time. That they trust those who put the policies on top of them. So, I realized at that time that that this might be a way that I can not only bring uh, invisibility to this, to this invisible generation of kids that I truly believe once they get hope, they're going to be the strongest advocates of America you'll ever see because they get it. They know what it felt like. They, they don't want their kids to feel the same way. That, that's, that's one of the reasons I decided to, to run for Congress. Um, I'm, no, I'm more passionate about it now more than ever because I think our country is, is kind of was sitting on the abyss that we have a chance to pull it back by going back to those, those basic tenets that, that made my community such a great community back in the 60s yeah. and, what makes, and what makes Utah so unique. You're such a positive guy. Uh, tell us about tell us about this campaign and tell us about what it's like running. It's been it's been fun because, but you know, I I've, I lived here. I was kind of in a silo and doing the things that I, that I was focused on with these kids. Now I'm really outside of that silo. I'm talking with people across the board. Uh, we're having a conversation now that I don't know if we still have if if I was still focused on what I was doing before. Uh, so I have not only a chance to 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 get to know the district number four uh, district four better. <clears throat> But I'm realizing that the values and principles um, that I grew up in of, of, um, of education, God, industry, and family, those things that were so dear to me back in Tallahassee are the same things I'm fighting for here. And what's so cool is that my kids are here. Uh, five of the six of them are in District 4. Ten of my 14 grandkids are in District 4. So I have, a, have, a, I have skin in the game to make sure this district wins, that it's a place that that we can, that our kids can afford to stay. They don't have to leave here. They can have the best education, the best choices of how to educate their kids. And how cool is it that the values of District Four can literally be the linchpin of our country? 
life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And uh, so it's kind of kind of cool that I'm, I'm in a place that I absolutely love, uh, in a culture that I love, yeah. and in which I grew up in, and it can make a difference right now. So if people want to get involved, if people want to support Burgess Owens, how can they get involved? The place to go to is Burgess for Utah, the number four Utah. You'll see what that four means. It's the four tenants that made my country, my, my community in Tallahassee great and what I see here. If you go there, you see what what how I how I kind of viewed the process, truth to power, and uh, and that's what I plan on taking to con- to DC when when I get there. I mean, it feels to me like we're watching with this whole situation with COVID nineteen that we're in the middle of. It's like uh, you get to kind of see the emperor has no clothes. You know, suddenly you're realizing truly how dysfunctional. It's one thing when government is running, when, you know, the, the economy's great, unemployment's low, then we hit a crisis like this and it just feels like a, a train wreck. Does that, does that get you even more excited or does that intimidate you? Well, there's, there's a couple of things. Um, I think it'll be a chance for America, Americans across the country, all of us, because this, you know, it's one thing that we've had in the past where we've had 9-11, which impacted Northeast and New York and Philadelphia, where I lived. Um, but it's another thing to have something that impacts every single person, every single American, no matter how old we are, no matter what uh, what race, what 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 uh, what party. This um, equal opportunity destroyer is something we all have to be concerned about. So, what happens when Americans realize we're at war that we truly are at risk? We come together like no other country has ever come together. That's what we do best. We really come together as a as a team. We put aside the stuff that divides us, and we figure out how to just win. And most of our country, that's what we're doing now. So we're going to come through this. I think we'll have more of appreciation for who we are as, as, a, as a country. Uh, we're going to also be able to identify those who kind of roots for our defeat. We can look back and say, who was rooting for us during these downtimes and who was rooting against us? Oh, so we're going, to, we're going to be okay. We're going to be okay with this. And I think we're going to also, many of us who are now taking more time out, I've never had this kind of time. I mean, literally, we stay in the house all day. I mean, seriously. I mean, it's it, it's amazing. But at the same time, my my kids are here. I have my daughter and son-in-law. They're they're building a home in, in, in three or four months. So they're here with me now. I spend more time with them. It, it it's it's a time for reflection. It's a time for us to figure out what's really important. And yes, it's a time of stress too, because so much is going on right now. But as we come out of it. You know, that idea of just win, baby, it comes right back to what we do best. And I think we're going to be we're going to be really good when it comes when we, when we get through this process. Well, I would say, you know, as a young man growing up in the Deep South at the time that you did, going to a school, becoming a Hall of Fame football player, playing in the NFL, having a business career, your ups, your downs. And now you're you're uh, you're definitely not one who is easily stopped. I would say at the top of the list, two things. Uh, an American and a chimney sweep. <laughs> Those two I want to put in there because the, the, the greatest nine words that we can tell each other as Americans, John, is if I can do it, you can do uh, it. So I'm so thankful I went through it. I'm glad I'll never go through that again. <laughs> but but uh, but it's, 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 it's important that we talk about the things we go through that don't work out because, man, people need to hear that. That gives them an idea that, you know what, if he can do it, Hey, maybe I can do this thing too. So Burgess, that's what it comes down so to. So inspiring. I've so thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. We're going to wrap up with the question that I just realized I didn't prepare you for, but it's the same question <laughs> we ask for all of our guests. And sometimes the spontaneous answers are the best. We ask all of our guests, and I'll ask you, Burgess, uh, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Oh, it's everything. It's everything, Sean. It's, it's nice to know that there's a plan. I mean, keep in mind that that's what we do. We, we sit around, we plan our lives out, we, we plan on how well we're going to get through college. It's nice to know there's a life plan, that no matter where we are in that process, that there's an end game that we can have control over. And that all we have to do is be patient, be focused, be faithful, and just train ourselves to get in the right habits. And we'll get, at the end of the day, as we get closer, we can do things like we're doing right now. I'm talking now about years past. I have a track record. I have a journey I've gone through. It's so easy for me now to see how much Heavenly Father had to do with my past because I, you know, because I understand that his plan was always there for me. So I, I, I it, it means everything. It, uh, it means probably more when you're going through the downtime because you realize it's temporary, but also it's very good when you're going through the uptimes. We realize that he's blessing us. Matter of fact, he's blessing us at all times. Mm. And that's really the message of life. 
every single step, every single day, there's a blessing if you're looking at deep enough. If we do that, then um, you know, then we one day we'll be uh, in that in His presence, and that's that's the day we realize everything was well worth it for sure. Oh, I love it. He is a father, a grandfather, a former NFL star. He is a former chimney sweep, and he is now a <laughs> candidate for Congress for the fourth district. In Utah, Burgess Owens, thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon, okay? And my special thanks to my new friend, Burgess Owens, one of the most inspiring men I've ever talked to. And I so look forward to the day that he and I can sit down and actually meet and talk because he is just a tremendous man. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, I had a fairly normal week for now, whatever normal means anymore. Uh, Of course, I was home all week and I was working. And each morning as I sit down, I have a planner. And this planner, I fill it out and it goes through my goals for the day and it goes through what I'm hoping to accomplish. And uh, it also has me start off my day with three things for which I am grateful. And I always enjoy filling it out. And for the most part, they're they're pretty similar. I'm grateful for home and the gospel and, you know, my family or just whatever comes to mind that day. And recently I've been filling it out, trying to think in terms of what are things I'm grateful for, especially in this time of COVID-19. Like, what am I grateful for in spite of how bad things are with coronavirus? What are the things I'm grateful for? And on Friday, I had a weird experience. I sat down. And I decided that instead of what am I grateful for, you know, hey, even though things are so terrible, what am I grateful for? I decided to see if I could list three things I was grateful for specifically that come from coronavirus. What are three things coronavirus has caused for which I am grateful? And I wondered if I could even come up with three. This has been such an insidious pandemic. It's been so terrible. So many people have lost their jobs and have gotten sick, and so many bad things have come from it. Could I come up with three things where I could say I'm grateful for coronavirus because? And I wasn't sure I could do it. But as I sat down and started thinking about it, I thought, you know what? I have not been at home for this long in a very long time, and just generally to be home and not on airplanes because of coronavirus, well, I'm grateful for that. Grateful I've been able to stay home. I've been able to spend more time with my wife and with my son. That's another thing for which I'm grateful. And then as a family, we've had our evenings somewhat open. We've been watching the Book of Mormon videos, and I am fascinated by them. I love those Book of Mormon videos. And so I was able to list that. I love the Book of Mormon videos. Wow, I came up with three. Isn't that awesome? And then I thought about all the long walks my wife and I have been on just to get out of the house and not go stir crazy and the talks we've been able to have. And I was grateful for that. And I thought about the more time I've spent playing video games with my son, Keaton, and how much we've laughed and enjoyed that. And I thought about how I've started playing the drums again in the evenings. I used to love playing the drums many years ago, but I gave that up a long time ago. And now, because I have this time, I'm playing drums again. And I thought about all the drives that my my wife and my son and I have been on. About every other or every third night, we go out for a long drive in the evening and just look at the sunset and really enjoy that time together talking. I thought about how much more organized I am now, the time that I've had to clean out my office and clean my room and to organize things. And I thought about how much more sleep I'm getting these days because I'm not distracted by getting up early to go to the airport and all the other things that were going on in my life. And all of a sudden I realized there were an avalanche of things for which I was grateful due to coronavirus. Things I would not have in my life right now were it not for that. And again, I recognize that, and I don't want to minimize just how terrible this pandemic has been. And I know that for some of you, you've lost jobs or you know people who have. Uh, I know people who have too. And I'm not saying that I wish it or that I think it's the best thing that's ever happened. It's not. It is a terrible thing. But there are reasons for me to be grateful And I assume that if you look close enough, there are for you too. And I get really caught up in the good versus bad. Coronavirus equals bad. 
but there are good things that came from it. And there are things that once things go back to normal, I pray that I will hold on to, that I will value time with family more, the things that I grew to take for granted, that I will appreciate them that much more. And I can honestly say for those things, and I want to be careful, it's just for those things. And again, I haven't lost my job. I haven't been sick. I know this might be weird to say, but for those things, I am grateful for coronavirus. And it changed the way I looked at everything. It made me feel more positive. And it's been that way all weekend. And I'm so grateful for the Savior. I can't imagine how difficult it was for those who loved him to watch him die. But the resurrection came out of the Savior's death. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for our prophet who leads us. I feel a stronger connection with him through the way that the uh, last conference went and through the fast that we just had this past Good Friday. What a blessing that is. All these things came from the coronavirus. And I'm sure if I were to sit here and really think about it, I could come up with a hundred more. I need to be more positive. I struggle with that sometimes. It becomes so easy in these difficult times to get down. But I know that God lives. I know that he loves me. And I know that I am becoming stronger through this. And that it is a temporary time. We will get through it. And again, hopefully we won't forget all the blessings that we learned during this pandemic. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in. We certainly appreciate it. If you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. That is S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. I got some really sweet letters this past week. Thank you so much. I so appreciate it. If you uh, want to support the show, nothing supports us more than if you could go wherever you listen to the show and leave us a five-star review We really appreciate it. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. If you're not following us there yet, won't you please consider it? It's where we post upcoming guests and we post information about the show. Well, that's about all we've got for this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it. Stay six feet away from anybody else, but go be in it. Just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 